0: Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on The Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into the Ford Podcast. Excited to have Keith Wasserman on the show with me today. Keith's the founder and CEO of Gelt Inc, one of the fastest growing real estate companies in the country. Gelt purchases multifamily, mobile home communities, self-storage facilities, and even recently RV parks. Fascinating conversation about how he built his company from one duplex to more than 5,000 units, and he's just getting started. Enjoy. So Keith, tell me about how Gelt got started, and kind of the the quick, or not even quick, but the the story of how Gelt started and uh, where you are today.
1: Yeah, definitely. So first of all, thanks for having me on the show here, Chris. And you know, I've I've always been very entrepreneurial. Um, you know, I'll take you back to when I when I was ten years old. In the household, we weren't really talking about you know movies and sports, and you know, I would attend an occasional sporting event with my dad and stuff. But we we talked about business and entrepreneurial kind of activities. And my parents, you know, they brought me to Costco and we we went to Costco and bought boxes of candy bars and then sold them one by one at the park, you know, so buying at retail and and wholesale and selling at retail. And then in uh, high school, um, one of my my dad's uh, friends taught me how to negotiate. And it really stuck with me that you really make money on the buy. And and we bought uh, a thousand leather jackets, um, and I started selling them to all the students and the parents and the teachers. they, they were IRs, they regulars. they had little blemishes on them. And I, I made a ton of money in high school doing that, and, and that led to my next business, which was uh, an eBay operation. We, we bought and sold around 200,000 items on eBay from 2003 to 2007 while I was in college um, at USC, University of Southern California here in LA. And I, I've never worked for anyone in my life. I, I'm sort of like a serial entrepreneur, and I just wouldn't make a good employee. I literally you know, my my dad's like, you want you should learn real estate, come come work for a friend of mine." so I, I I was there nine o'clock. I left at noon at lunchtime. I just couldn't find myself working for anyone, and I, I have no problem you know fi- filing paperwork for myself, but I, I didn't really feel like that was the best use of my time doing it for others. So I wanted to really learn by doing, and I was always intrigued by real estate. Um, my my dad's a pretty successful attorney here in l a, but I really believe he's made most of his money in real estate investment and development. So um, it's it just really an amazing business that you could do at any time in your life for your whole career. And we started very small. Um, my cousin, Damien Langeri came to me with the opportunity to buy a four unit building in the central Valley of California in a city called Bakersfield, which most people in LA don't even know exists actually, even though it's the ninth largest city in California and like the 39th and even in the United States, it's, around two hours north of L.A., and it's based on oil and agriculture, uh, a very industrious town, but it got, it, got, it got hit really hard during the recession, housing prices, and, you know, it was a boom and bust kind of situation that was overbuilt and then busted even before L.A. and other areas. So we got we got there really at the bottom of the bottom when there was Ariel's galore. Um, previously on the line, we were talking about, you know, how anyone could, could get a residential mortgage, and we bought 15 little fourplexes they They were selling for anywhere between one hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the whole building, and they previously sold at the height of the market maybe oh four or five six for around four to five hundred thousand. So really no brainer you know making money on the buy, which is a recurring theme, and we you know we we got some residential financing we our mortgage payment was around six, $700 and each unit rented for around that price. So if you had two units, you, you were making money, three or four, you were cash flowing like a pig. And, you know, I cut my teeth driving up to Bakersfield every week with Damien. It was some of the happiest times of my career learning the business. We didn't have anything. We were both living at my parents' house. I was 25 and he was 29 when we started this business uh, 10 years ago. So, you know it's it's been an exceptional ride and we're we're very fortunate but we we got our start really just by doing and learning and you know having good mentors around us and reading as much as we could but literally just starting very small and and, and doing you know these activities
0: that's fascinating and and to stay on that topic for a little bit so you buy 15 duplexes in Bakersfield which is a drive away how did you get them? Did they require remodeling or did they require, or did, did y'all do it yourself or did you sub that out to people?
1: Yeah. So <clears throat> Damien was the one that really, he, his father was in, in, in Bakersfield actually. And he pointed us to that town. He was investing in real estate and, and, and sort of got burned during the bu- bubble because he bought, you know, at the high of the market, but he said, this is this, you know, this is a great market. And he was very hands on with the contractors, knew. new, you know which contractors were reputable, uh, who to work with so and he really taught us you know how to negotiate how to how to bid out projects, um, what to look for when we were doing the re- these remodels, all these buildings were pretty much boarded up, bank owned, uh, you know left rotting and we we came in and 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 spent decent amount of money renovating, you know they were they they were in the rougher parts of town. so another recurring theme I've, ha- I've had is Don't over-improve the buildings. We we make them very nice and clean, and but where we because at some point there's there's diminishing returns. If you put extra dollars in, you're not going to get it out. So we made we made these units you know livable, clean, nice, didn't over-improve, and we were able to rent them out you know relatively quickly because um, they, they were nicer than the older buildings building stock in in those areas. Another important lesson I learned through this process is just because something's cheap doesn't mean it's it's a good deal. You know, all these initial four places were in rougher parts of town. And we, we we didn't make as much money as we liked, but it set the billing blocks for learning about where to buy. And we started buying in better locations in, in Bakersfield, for example, but better areas. And we did much better on those assets. And, and that led us to, to new markets. Uh, we, we moved into, into uh, Phoenix, Arizona right afterwards. This was 2010-11, and Phoenix was reeling through after the bust. Um, we bought... 2000 units there from 2010 to 2013 or 14. That was our biggest market. And we just kept moving into new markets, uh, you know, year after year and buying one property at a time, essentially. So, um, yeah, it was a big, ju- a big adjustment though, moving from a fourplex to a, a larger apartment community. I couldn't have done it with, with, I couldn't have done it with a lot of people ask how, how in the hell we did this. We, we built a track record. We had 15 of these little fourplexes with a few family friend investors that put up some money for us. And, we showed them that we could you know, renovate and, and rent out and, and cash flow these assets. So we, we, I brought on two senior partners, we call them the gray hairs, that could qualify for a larger loan and help bring in some new investors. So one of the gray hairs was my father that I actually brought in as a partner, and, and then another gray hair gentleman, Adrian, uh, who, who's, who we, who's no longer with us now but was an instrumental partner in our beginnings, helped us. And so we, uh, we bought a 78-unit building in December of 2009, a full year later, and that was our first foray into larger uh, multifamily assets.
0: Wow. Is Gelt uh, vertically integrated? Do you all do management, construction, and everything, or do you third-party out uh, some of the services?
1: So that's a great question. Initially, we, we didn't have any great luck with the property management companies in Bakersfield that were managing our fourplexes. So we actually created our own management company to service that, and then we started taking on other clients. It was pretty much a disaster. We're not built to be property in the property management business, especially remotely. Uh, Maybe I I have a different opinion if all my assets were in LA. But we, even from the beginning days, we outsourced management on the larger assets, and you know we we were so we eventually got out of the property management business. Now all of our apartments are managed by large. Reputable uh, third-party management companies that are in the in the different regions—they're the best ones in regions uh, that that we're in. So we have three or four different management companies we work with, and um, we're very hands-on with those management companies. But it allows us to stay small and nimble. It sounds like we have about the same size organization. We have around 25 people in our in our company. Uh, if we had to do our own property management, we would have over over 200 uh, staff because all these sites have between five to 15 staff members between the. The leasing office and in the field to make all the maintenance tests and stuff. And then we'd have, have to have regional managers and, you know, constantly training, hiring, firing, you know, just it, I didn't want to be in the people business. I wanted to be in the real estate investment business. So, you know, that, that's, that's our motto. People have been successful either both ways. There's no right or wrong, but I think it's, allowed us to scale quicker by not being bogged down in the day-to-day management.
0: We came to the same realization. We started out early on our end doing property management and quickly did a head count of what we would need to hire to get into full property management and came to that same conclusion that we were better off being great asset managers uh, than property managers. So you talked about friends and family money. Is it fair to say that uh when somebody's raising friends and family money that first investment in somebody is mainly more based on I'm going to invest in Keith and I know he's going to give it everything he has than you know necessarily, Keith knows everything about real estate, and there's there's no doubt that he's going to hit a home run in real estate. would you Would you agree it's more of an investment in that person than, than the actual project itself. 100%. early on? And, and, and it, and
1: even even in this day, we you know we've raised over three hundred fifty million. To this day, I always tell our investors and potential investors, you're investing in us. You're investing in the jockey. You're investing in us because you know during good times, during tough times, you can, you could uh, trust us. We're very open and transparent about how things are performing on the property. We have a great track record that, that, that's also a plus, but you really are investing in us. And even more so in the in early days when you don't even have that track record yet. Um, we've only once lost money on a little fourplex. It was like $30,000. We, we took that out of our own pocket to, to pay our investor back so we could have a track record that says we've never lost any investor any money. So it's, it's a people business, definitely. And you know, we, we want to have a stellar reputation and keep that reputation for sure.
0: I love it you are highly focused in multifamily. You also own mobile home parks. Why multifamily and why mobile home parks?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. So in the formation of GELT 10 years ago when we started, we had to make a decision. Did we want to go in the single-family residential or the multifamily? We were looking at tapes of these uh, single-family homes that were located all over the country pretty much and, and, and just in our heart, we thought that was going to be a very difficult business model to aggregate and manage all these assets located all over the place. It, we like the model where you have mass, and, and one apartment community could have. I mean, some of our buildings are four or five hundred units, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, in one area, in one building instead of going to five hundred homes that are scattered miles apart, for example. So right. we like we like the business model much better on multifamily. You could finance it much better. The aggregators have done okay. Some have gone public and raised a lot of money. I don't think they've made tons of money on, on like operations. It's more just price appreciation. It was a one-time you know, in our lifetime kind of thing to, to be able to buy all these Aria homes. I'm in the business of long-term holding. I don't think these companies are going to be around long-time holding these single-family homes. Um, you know, I think eventually they're going to dispose of them. I, 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 I'm all about preserving capital, growing it over time. And multifamily, we thought, is the best way to do it. We, we looked at office buildings, shopping centers, never loved the business model. Uh, we saw the way people were shopping was changing with the Internet. We saw the way people working was changing with uh, collaborative workspace. Um, and just we made the right decision back then to, to start a multifamily. We've had you know strong tailwinds, but I, I'm still very bullish on it for the long term. We, we see different kind of concepts that are popping up that, that we're going to start experimenting with on the development side, such as co-living. Um, micro units, et cetera. but it's still, you know, pe- where people need to live a, a place with a roof over their head. You know, since the recession hit, you have nine million new renter households that are formed, and there just hasn't been enough housing, uh, multi-family housing built. So uh, you still have a supply-demand imbalance. That's why you're seeing rents continue to grow. Also, I, we're big on workforce housing buildings built '70s, '80s, '90s that have lower rents than like newer buildings, uh, dramatically lower rents. So we'll come in. We'll do interior renovations, exterior renovations, manage it better, lift the rents in the process, and provide a better, you know, home for people to live. And, um, you know, it's a win-win scenario, whereas some of our peers are, are buying brand-new buildings, and we, we just can't get the same kind of yield. And we, so we like workforce housing. Um, commercially, you have, you have issues with, you know, if you have a big tenant that leaves, you have vacancy for a long time. It could whack your cash flow. You could have no cash flow or have to feed the property for a long time until that lease is up. You have broker commissions that eat into the cash flow. You have tenant improvement dollars, so the cash flow is a lot lumpier. And we're we're dealing with individual investors, and I want to be able to just have, you know, consistent income stream coming to them through, you know, be, always being around 95, 96% occupied on these buildings. Um, you know, maybe at the lowest 92, 93% at, at certain times, but it's always gonna have pretty consistent cash flow. You know, as long as you don't over leverage, you're, you're gonna be fine for the long run. I mean, some of our peers got hurt you know, over, over leveraging in markets like Phoenix, that rents dropped 20% from peak to trough. But if, if, if you didn't over leverage and you were able to hold the buildings through the, recy- the recession, those values are up dramatically more than they were right. and the rents are dramatically higher. And that, 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 that's it. You just got to mitigate your risks and, you know, lower leverage. And, you know, we do long-term fixed rate debt. We raise a lot of money up front extra for, uh, you know, cushion for rainy day and, and, Real estate is not a get-rich-quick thing. It's just a way to build wealth over time, pay down that mortgage and have rents increase over time and, you know, the cost, replacement costs of things increase. And it's just a great way to, to park money and, and have uh, great, you know, and there's all those tax benefits also. So it's, it's just a great way to preserve and build wealth over time, I'd say.
0: Would you, how do you think about uh, the future? Do you think uh, renting is the future or ownership is the future, especially as, you know, millennials and, the younger generation require more flexibility. They're, they're not getting married as quickly. They're not starting families as quickly. They're not having as many kids. They're having more pets. There's a, there's a debate out there that the, the future of the world is renting, not owning. Um, I, fall on the, I fall in the future of being closer to renting. Uh, where do you stand on that? And I'd imagine if it is renting, that bodes very well in the multifamily world.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's always gonna be a, a subset of people that want to own. But the renti- renter generation population is going to continue to boom with with the millennials, like you said, and then the, the other end of the barbell. I think the boomers are also becoming more of a renter because you know they, they downsize from from their home, and and you, you, you know there there there's a lot of renters by choice, not just by necessity. Um, I, I believe you know I, I think home ownership went from around 69% to like 62%. It, it finally started stabilizing. It hasn't dropped anymore. Some some countries like Germany or like cities like Berlin have a lot higher renters than homeownerships. And then some areas like that we've been in, like China and Israel, it's all 100% pretty much homeownership. But they're, they're starting to see a lot more rentership and it's becoming more and more okay to rent rather than having to own. And I think we're going to continue to see that for sure uh, in the U.S. I, is it going to drop to a 50% level? You know home homeowners versus renters for the whole country, maybe not, but in, in certain markets, it already is. I mean where where, where it's just extremely, extremely expensive to, to buy homes. so I, I say you know I, th- I think that the tailwinds are still at our back for for renters and being able to be more mobile, uh, especially with work, um, new age of work. yeah
0: you mentioned co-living, you mentioned micro units. there are it seems like there's a new app every day that's an amenity for Multifamily and, and the tenant experience. I've, I've said a lot that it's almost like, uh, in some way, there's a lot of experimenting going on with the way we think about living. What are some of the biggest kind of changes that you've seen since you started uh, buying larger complexes in 2010 to where we are today?
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. there every, you know, every week there's a new app that pops up, and it, 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 it's a it's a nice thing to have, but not a real. I don't think it's really solving a, a serious need, and a lot of them have come and gone. We've invested in a lot of early-stage tech startups and a good amount in the real estate space. Uh, we started our, our own financial technology company called Demuso, which handles all the rent payments on these large multifamily properties, where we saw a real, a real pain point for, for both the renter and, and the owner. Um, what was the question
0: again? I was just got sidetracked. What the? Uh... Yeah. What are just what are some of the biggest kind of changes that you've seen um, in the way that people think about living? And then, what does the next kind of five years look like with all this? You, you mentioned co living and micro units, and on top of that, all the apps. Like, it feels very experimental with how the living, how people think about living uh, today, and and where we're going to be a decade from now.
1: Yeah, definitely. So. <clears throat> I really think in certain markets, you're going to see more of that co-living expand where people could pay a, a lower price, you know, just to rent essentially the bedroom. Um, and what
0: is co-living? A lot of
1: that co-living is, is essentially like sort of like like a dorm, essentially style living where you rent the bedroom. It could be furnished or unfurnished. You have maybe four or five, you know, rooms around a communal, communal kind of kitchen, den area. Um, it could have a uh, shared bathroom or I believe, you know, better scenario, obviously everyone pretty much wants their own bathroom. Um, and right now lenders are sort of gun shy on lending on this kind of thing and, and lending because you can generate a lot more cash flow from, from renting on a square foot basis on these units, renting uh, by the bedroom instead of the whole unit. I think in certain markets, it's going to be really popular. Um, we're, we're looking at doing it, doing it, but with less frills, a lot of these, co-living buildings are, are amenity jam-packed and, you know, just very high rent still, even though you're getting a small space. We're, we're, our, my thought is just low amenity, but really high in design. And, um, you know, just to keep, keep the cost af- affordable. Right. You know, micro-units, the same thing. We, we have uh, friends that have been developing micro-units locally here in Santa Monica. They've done very, very well. So certain areas, I think, bodes well for that. I didn't talk about it yet, but manufactured housing, I'm still extremely bullish on as an investment. Um, It's a scenario where the resident actually owns their own home, and as the the owner of the property, you just lease them the space, the the lot. And we've bought around eight manufactured housing communities uh, over the last two years. They're really not building many new communities in the U.S. Um, Most cities don't want them. They don't create the same kind of tax revenue. A lot of the neighborhoods are against them. And it's just a great business that is really niche and under. I mean, there's literally around I think 20, twelve twenty million uh, people that live in a manufactured house in, in the United States, and it, it's um, a great business. You can finance it with Fannie and Freddie debt, which we do on all our you know apartment buildings for the most part. Generate a tremendous amount of cash flow and. Two years ago it was a lot easier to, to, to buy and make make a lot of money on these things, but now you have a lot of institutional capital pouring in from the likes of like Carlisle, Brookfield, Colony Capital, et cetera. So it's getting tougher uh, as as an apartment buying, finding good deals there, but still love the asset class because it is people where people live. Uh, the residents stay on average 10 years. Uh, so you've long long tenancy. It costs a lot of money to disassemble and transport a home. So those homes pretty much stay there. And yeah, we, we buy pretty much three three star um, communities, and it's workforce housing. It's affordable, three to five hundred dollar lot rent, and you know where the apartment rents in those markets are at least a $1, thousand, twelve hundred plus. So, you know, you're you're less than half the, the cost of apartment living, and you don't have to share a wall with someone. And uh, so we we make these communities really nice, you know, really attractive landscaping and adding amenities and. It's been a it's been a good business
0: for us too. So, as the owner, you're responsible for the common areas, the amenities, and then I'm assuming providing electricity and water to each lease space.
1: Correct. Yeah. So it's 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 we're long term holders of real estate, and, and this asset class is like the the least cost like for capex over time because you don't own the actual homes. You know, whereas on our apartments over the years, we're gonna have to replace roofs and asphalt and you know. Uh, Electri- electrical systems and, and boilers and chillers and all, all kinds of stuff, where it's, it, it has much less CapEx requirements over time. So the, the negative is in a good market, you can't push rents as quickly as, a, as an apartment would. But right. the flip side, I think, is it, during a down market, I don't think you're going to see the, the same kind of um, you know, drop in rents. So.
0: Are people signing uh, annual contracts or leases? Or are they signing you know multi-year, five-year, ten-year? Is it just... Year to year,
1: yeah, it's pretty much year to year, just just like um, multifamily. And you know, we 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 we've seen rent growth not not as much as as, as in multifamily, but my asset managers love dealing with with these. It's very little things going on in the property, and um, we try to buy communities that have little park owned home inventory. If we if we do inherit a community, if we buy a community that has some park owned homes, we'll, we'll try to sell them off to start just getting that lot rent going. And it's been been a great business.
0: That's great. Are there any other asset classes that y'all are focused on besides uh, multifamily and mobile home communities?
1: Yeah. A third one that sort of fits our criteria is self-storage. Also, another one that's a very low CapEx required asset over over time. We like buying those in high barrier to entry markets. So we bought our first one a few months ago, actually, in Southern California here in South Pasadena. It makes a great redevelopment site as well. This site was on the light rail. on a street that has tons of retail shopping etc and you know it was it was built in the I don't know early 90s a long time ago before the area has really changed a lot and I think uh, you know the rents were extremely below market and it's it's not it's not going to require as much money to to renovate as a like an apartment community to get the rents up and and, and literally all the other storage facilities in the area were all you know 98 99 percent occupied and uh, there's a more there was a moratorium actually in 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 South Pasadena so there's not going to be any new Competition even built, so you know that's another industry we really like. I'm, I'm I'm cautious about technology impacting that one, though. You have a lot of tech startups in the space, but I, I think that's only going to serve niche customers. And I think self storage long term still going to be uh, a good asset class. So we're we're, we're doing that, and then um, we we bought an RV park as a as a really um, interesting opportunity. It was a 66 site RV park in Monterey, California, right on the ocean. And it had extra land adjacent to it where we could build an extra 22 pads. So it had, um, I think they went through their entitlements and got their final permit, but they let it lapse because this, it, it, they did it right, I guess, during the res- or right before the recession. So we're going through that process right now again, and it's going to be a huge value add once we get those sites going. And, and we've also added a lot of um, cool ways to make more money, glamping uh, tents for certain customers that don't want to just, in with an RV. They want to fly up or drive up and stay in a, in a tent or, uh, uh you know, with a bed and a, in a you know, a heater, et cetera. Or whereas before people were pitching their own tents and they were charging $20 a night. Now we charge around $200 a night, um, for this glamping tent, which is a, a great boost to the NOI for our, you know, for us and our investors. And then, uh, we have some small tiny homes we, we rent out nightly there and some, um, some uh, Airstreams and we, we've added a beer and wine license and it, it's more like running a hotel. It's, it's pretty, in, pretty involved, but and it's sort of a passion project, but we saw a huge amount of upside, right. and it was an irreplaceable location. So I think we'll, we'll look at more of those RVing as a whole, it, it, as an industry is really picking up. I think last year or the year before it has seen the most RV sales ever. They started really picking up. You have millennials now that are more, you, you know, tra- traveling the country and are more mobile and you have the boomers that are big, you know population that, that likes doing this um, you know being a city guy I've only done it once, but I had a lot of fun being in an r v driving up the coast of california so definitely uh, you know good asset r v rV storage is another one that we're looking at because it people uh, you know in, in cities don't really have places to, to, to put these rVs and they'll they'll, they'll pay up for, for storage because these rVs could cost up to half a million dollars i mean it's, it's uh, pretty amazing it's expensive as homes in some areas so you know, it's a second home for people, essentially. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on that, too. And we're, we're entrepreneurial and opportunistic, but the, the bread and butter of what we do is still, you know, multi-family yep. um, value-add for the most part. We, we do some development, but only locally in L.A. where we know the areas, know all the local, you know, roles and, the, and just it's in our backyard easier to oversee.
0: Yeah. No. So the the RV the RV model is a lot more uh, short term rentals, people coming in and out, as opposed to mobile home parks, which is a long term stay.
1: Correct. Yeah, the mobile home park it, it's called mobile home, but it's really not mobile. It, it costs around I've heard seven to ten thousand dollars or more to disassemble and transport, you know, a manufactured home, and you know, you sometimes see them going down the highway. In sections, there you, you have uh, like single wide, double wide, triple wide. So they, they, they do them in sections, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a costly thing to move. So they're very stationary. And if so, if a resident wants to leave, essentially, they'll, they'll and they own their own, they'll just sell it to another person that will buy it and then you know continue paying that lot rent. So it's uh, definitely not mobile, <laughs> it's not a it's stationary. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I love how you think about although you, um, Are investing in real estate? What you're also a pattern that I'm hearing is you're paying very close attention to human behavior and what people are up to, and helping that be your guiding light into what asset classes might be most profitable for you. And of course, your investors.
1: Absolutely, yeah. We're constantly, you know, seeing what the big trends are, and you know, looking looking for opportunity. I think someone asked, "What would I be doing now if I was just starting?" The business in, in this market. I'd say I, I, would, I would take a close look at, um, they call them cloud kitchens or ghost kitchens. Uh, you have Travis, Tra- Tra- Travis Kalanick of Uber started, or actually he bought into this business and he's running it now, called Cloud Kitchen. And they are essentially, what they're doing is they're taking uh, in, in industrial buildings that are sort of infill, converting them into commercial kitchens, allowing restaurateurs to essentially open up an online-only restaurant without having a physical real estate footprint, and so it keeps the, it keeps the cost down. It's turnkey. A restaurant's work could, could start with one concept, see how it does. If it doesn't do well, switch 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 to another concept. So you have not just entrepreneurs and startups, but you also have established restaurants um, that that take space in these these cloud kitchens, and they literally it doesn't bog down the back of the back of the house because you have so much more delivery because of Postmates and you know uh, DoorDash and Grubhub and I think it's really you know why need that real estate on the you know very expensive real estate to rent out if you're doing a lot of takeout business maybe you could you know have a smaller footprint and have different locations making preparing the food offsite and 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 um partnering with these or developing your own I don't know exactly what they're doing but essentially all these delivery services know where people are pinging from. So if they see a lot of pay, pay, people pinging from a certain part of LA, let's say uh, for their restaurant, they don't have to be located there. They could just have a, a kitchen there, go cloud kitchen and make all the food and, 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 and deliver and, and build a, a big business. I think, I think you're going to see some, some monster companies that are built on top of these platforms that don't have any physical footprint. Like the next McDonald's could be built, you know, uh, with, with this kind of platform in uh, these commercial kitchens, and and be 100 percent delivery only, or start delivery, and then and then start having physical footprint too. Just like just like retailers, you have ones that started online, and you know it's becoming more and more expensive to advertise online with, with Google and Facebook and Instagram. And now they have they're opening physical stores. They're e-commerce first, but they they call it on the channel now, where they actually then open a physical footprint. So you have like I guess Bonobos and. Uh, Warby Parker started this way, and in the Santa, in the Santa Monica, not Santa Monica, in Century City here, the mall, the Westfield Mall that was re- recently renovated. You have a ton of these brands that were native online, and then they opened up a physical location after. So I think you're, you're going to see some more of that in um, in restaurants and, and and that trend with, with these cloud or ghost kitchens. They're doing it. They started in other countries, like in India years ago, and I think it just started catching on here. But it, it makes sense to reposition old, you know, outdated uh, space that for, for this kind of
0: need that's fascinating travis if you're listening to this we have a lot of industrial and dfw we'd love to be chatting how do you think about going into a new market what what drives you there and then once you have decided on a market how do you kind of set up how do you find your property manager who's going to do all your construction and renovations do you have to achieve a certain economy of scale to be profitable in a new market how do you think about all that
1: we're sort of market-driven first, so we'll study, you know, months or years on a market, really understand the local market, and then dive in big in that market. Any market we go into, we try to get at least 1,000, you know, units. So our first market was Bakersfield. We liked that one based on oil and agriculture. It's proximity to L.A., and, uh, you know, prices were whacked really hard there. We got there first. It came out of the, the cycle really nicely. Oil was over $130 a barrel at the time, and, you know, it was, it was doing really well. They added a ton of jobs. And then we moved into Phoenix because we studied that market and saw that it was, uh, you know, the, I think, the eighth largest city in the United States. It's one of the top ten largest cities, maybe fifth, actually. It's, it's, it's a huge city, and I've been growing up, going to Phoenix. My grandparents lived there. Saw the market just boom, and they had a huge bust, and I knew in my heart it, was not, it wasn't going to be down forever. They had the immigration bill passed that 100,000 people, illegals, left, and a lot of these communities were reeling because of the loss of people and, and jobs, but Literally, it rebounded very nicely, even quicker than we thought. You know, we, we, we first do all our research remotely, then go on the ground and, and then understand the local market, study the local market, talk talk to all the local brokers, talk to local business owners, uh, economic development corporations, wherever we get a lot of data on it, and then introduce us ourselves to all the um, the, the brokers that, that focus on these multifamily properties, 200 units and, and up, which is the ones we're, we're buying. And... and, and, and Small markets, you might have only three or four players that are selling these kind of assets. Uh, in larger markets, you could have 10, 20, 30, 40. I mean, it's, it's still limited. And, and 99% of the sales of larger assets go through brokers. So we just uh, literally build relationships with the brokers that we're trying to buy in those areas and become part, get on their distribution list. Uh, Most Most deals are widely marketed. Some are marketed only to select few groups, which we hope and we are on most of these short lists from these brokers. And at the end of the day, what differentiates buyers, I believe in my heart is performance, being able to perform at the price you go into contract at without retrading, unless there's something really material that was not disclosed. Um, The broker wants to make sure that commission's in the bag and uh, same as the seller, the seller wants to know that there's not gonna be any retrade where they have to bring it to market. So literally having good relationships with the brokers and sellers is what's allowed us to build this, this company.
0: That's awesome. When when you get there, how do you trust who the contractor is going to be? That's one of the places where things can go really wrong and get out of budget. Subs are walking off the job. How do you get really comfortable with who's going to do that work for you?
1: We always lean on the management companies we work with because they have pricing power and they, they know through experience because they've been working with these GCs for a long time. They know which ones are, 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 are reputable, which ones... You know, don't overcharge. Which we always bid at least three times for, for large projects. We oversee all the major capex work, but we work hand in hand with with um, GCs that have worked with the management companies. So you asked about management companies. So we so we have one that's sort of our go-to. It's, it's called AMC, and they're based in Salt Lake, but they have a big presence in markets that we're in, like Denver. So they manage around probably two thirds of our assets. If they're in a market, if they're in the a market that we're going to. Um, we always make sure that they have a good regional presence there, just because they're in a market, it, 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 it all boils down to the people, so it's like, we like their company and their culture and what, they, what they're all about, and they're very aggressive, for example, on other income, and they, they run a pretty lean ship. but as long as they have a good regional presence there in those markets, we'll go with them. If they're not located there, or they don't have a strong regional presence, we'll go with um, the two or three other ones that we use. We always bet the management companies talk to you know other clients of theirs and it's a small industry like all the large multi-family owners know each other um for the most part we all go to the same industry events and that's another thing i always try to be a friendly competitor with people um because we're always buying and selling from each other so like for example eight of our last nine deals have we bought from one large fund that sells 40 plus deals a year and buys 40 plus deals a year so um i'd say just it's all relationship driven. And, um, you know, we lean on our relationships with our management companies, just like we do on our, with our brokers.
0: So you've, f- you found a lot of success in building relationships and finding opportunities going to some of these bigger multifamily conferences.
1: Yeah, I, I, I view it. I read a lot. So everything that they talk about pretty much uh, on the panels, I, I, I read and know the people and stuff. So I, I focus when, when I go to any industry event, just actually networking and talking to, to, to people that you know we have we have relationships with or pot- potentially new 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 relationships. Uh, so getting in front of brokers and sellers um, and, and industry events are good for that because they come from all around the country to those industry events. Uh, for apartment business, you have NMHC is the main one. Uh, I go to NAA and uh, Real Share. Um, so there's three or four that I go to every year uh, for the apartment industry, and it, it, it's you know, I read all the industry news. I, um, I'm I'm a part of, uh, you know, YPO and I'm part of the like multifamily division there. We, we always meet once a year, we have a big symposium. So I'd say, uh, friendly competition and we share best practices with other uh, multifamily owners.
0: Will you be at the YPO global real estate deal in LA this year?
1: I will. It's in my, it's in my my backyard. Are, Are you part of YPO too?
0: I am. I'll be there. I literally signed up last week. I'm excited. Excellent.
1: I'll see you in person. Did you go last year in Montreal, by any chance?
0: I didn't go last year. This will be my first year. We have a we have a Texas council that we do quarterly uh, with all the CEOs around Texas, which has been amazing. But this will be my first global. Got it.
1: That's, that's where I met Adam Blake from uh, from YPO. So uh, just joined a year ago myself, and it's been a, a great experience. You know, so I, I've done the Multifamily family uh, symposium and and the global uh, real estate, which which was really um, cool to meet other other like-minded you know relatively younger I think to be part of YPO you got to be under 45 to join and then you age out at 50 it's a great organization anyone listening you know if if you qualify there's certain certain qualifications in terms of number of employees or revenue or assets size you could go on their website if you qualify I'd say definitely look into YPO it's a great organization You, you know I made a lot of new friends that way and 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 learned a lot in the process.
0: It's incredible. It's been one of the most life-changing things that I've been a part of, and I don't say that lightly. You mentioned having 600 investors. Do y'all raise money from, I'm assuming, a lot of individuals, but do you also have kind of go-to groups that write much larger checks than maybe an individual would, or how have you gotten to 600 investors?
1: Yeah, so we got to 600 investors literally one at a time. We started... With one investor who was the first investor was a, a gentleman who worked for my dad 10 years ago, maybe. And this was 10 years ago. So a long time ago, he used to work. He was an attorney at my dad's law firm and moved to Israel and was catching up with my dad and telling him he was interested in real estate and investing in America. And literally, you know, my dad was telling him about what we were doing. And that was our first investor. And then the second investor was a family friend um who invested with us that has known you know my family a long time and then i started having my own personal friends come in and then the family friends started telling other friends and then my dad started having having some clients come in and we've built this one investor at a time one property at a time and we have a minimum investment of a hundred thousand per deal that which is stated in the offering memorandum however if someone wants to start with fifty thousand um just to get more comfortable with us you know that that's fine as well like the current deal we're buying right now, we're closing on in a month from now, a $62 million purchase, we're raising around $25.5 million. We have around 150 investors in that deal. So, wow. um, I mean, if you do the math, we we have a ton of $100,000 investors, which is the most common check size, but we have some larger ones that skew it like up to a million dollars and, and then some 50s, even 25 if someone's Younger, up and coming, really hungry that I like, uh, you know, I, the earlier you can start investing, the better. As long as you don't need need these monies, these are illiquid kind of investments, which I actually like. I like that you you can't click a button and, and sell it in a panic. Um, right. Where I've done that in the stock market and I wish I didn't like, you know, I had, I had Netflix that, you know, all my bar mitzvah money was in Netflix and that would have gone up a hundred fold if I didn't sell it when it only went up two times, went because it dropped and I got scared or something, you know? So, I like the illiquid nature of it, actually, and it's it's actually really good for a lot of our investors. We have a lot of investors now that are in um, uh, professional athletes, for example. One one of my um, newest team members was a former uh, professional athlete for the um, New York Mets, and he, he has a lot of uh, you know teammates and friends that are investing with us. And it's good because they have short careers, and this this is something that that will grow over time. And once they retire, you know, the, the cash flow from these assets hopefully will be enough to you know, be able to live off of it and, and not have it and not have to dip into the principal. So we have people from all walks of life, young, old business people, professionals, retired people, people inherited money, whatever. As long as someone's accredited, uh, we can work with them. And that's that's the business model we have. It's a syndication business model. but. There's so many ways to do real estate. You could do it with your own personal money and it'll grow slower, but you, you start smaller and, and keep refinancing or selling and, and, and doing it, you know, one by building by building. And I know a lot of successful people have done that. I know successful people that have done institutional JVs, you know, they partner with uh, larger larger funds and, you know, it, it's a lot more costly, that capital, but that's the way they've built their business and th- th- they've been successful doing that. You, you have people that have done a fund structure where they go out and raise funds you know, starting small funds, and then over time getting to larger and larger funds as they develop. And there's no right or wrong. It's just, I think, what, what's the DNA of your company? What What's your long-term goals? And I, I think syndication aligns best with us because we like having personal relationships with our investors. I like making our, you know, family and friends and friends of friends money. And um, I like holding these assets long-term, whereas a lot of funds and JVs, they have a three to five-year kind of uh, horizon. Um, We're long-term, you know, visioned Owners, that's the way to make money, in my opinion, in real estate. Just buy and hold, and take good care of the assets, and let time do do its work. Uh, one of my mentors said, "Time and inflation are real estate's best friends," and I really, truly believe truly believe that. Anything we've sold, you know, I sort of regret because it's resold at a higher price. But we needed to sell to create a track record. But nowadays, we're, we're selling occasionally only, and and we're pretty much doing uh, supplemental financing or refinancing to, to get some some equity back. You know, but. Long-term long-term goal is to build a, just as large of a portfolio as possible and, you know, do do good for our stakeholders, our investors, and, 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 our, and our renters, you know, providing good, safe, affordable housing for them, making, you know, good, consistent cash flow and, you know, upside for our investors. And, and if we do well for all that, we're, you know, we're going to do well, too. Yep.
0: You know, so so uh, these deals happen pretty quick. They happen in 60 days. You've recently raised this $25 million for this latest purchase what's your process for raising? Do you use software to help get the deal out? And uh, we use a platform called Juniper square for all of our fundraising and investor management, but how do, how do you do it?
1: Yeah. So I actually use their competitor. IMS. We were pitched Juniper and IMS. We chose IMS for different reasons. I wasn't too involved in the decision picking process. I'm sure both of them are great. And, once you once you have a lot of investors, some kind of you know software tool is good for that. So we we always d- d- disseminate the offering memorandums and stuff on, on that. So literally the process goes like this: we 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 look at a ton of deals. If we like a deal, we'll bid on it. If we bid on it, we get into the best and final. Usually, we we really try to win it. If we if we do win the deal, then all the you know everything starts. We have um, you know we're negotiating a purchase sale agreement simultaneously. We're doing all of you know start. Sometimes we start with an access agreement even before a purchase and sale agreement signed. But we start doing all our physical due diligence, walking all the units, inspecting all the major systems, doing a lease file audit, um, just making sure what was presented is what was, you know, what's advertised is what is there. Simultaneously, we're lining up all the financing. We, we put together the offering memorandum. We send it out to our list of our 600 current investors. I got another, give or take, I don't know, 1,500 that are like potential investors, people that have, you know, told me they're interested and just haven't pulled the trigger yet. You know, everyone I meet pretty much, I, t- I talk to them about what I do and, you know, I'm passionate about what I do. And I think more people that, um, you know, have, have, have a little money in savings should should park it in real estate. I think it's good for, 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 for most people's portfolio. And so, you know, then we're, we're, we put out a, di- a due date where all the funds are due. It, I call it like hurting cats. So sometimes we have people that come in early. Some people come in a little later. So we always have uh, our own lines of credit and cash to close a deal in case, you know, it takes a little extra time. And, you know, right. some cases we, we've we oversubscribed deals and we've had to give back money. Sometimes we just shut the deal off once we hit the dollar amount and, and just tell people, sorry, it's too late. It's sort of on a case-by-case basis, but um, it does happen quick, like you said, usually around 60 days uh, from start to finish. Because We usually try to get 30 days DD, due diligence, and uh, 30 days thereafter to close. Sometimes we got to do it a little quicker. Yeah, definitely, you know, it, it's nerve-wracking raising a lot of money really quickly, but We have the track record, and we have a huge investor base. We don't have to rely. I'd be more scared if we if you have to rely on one partner that could say yes or no, and if they say no, you have to back out. So I like any deal that we go under contract on. We're too small not not to close on it. So we 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 closed every deal that we've gone under contract on, except one where they had a material uh, retaining wall uh, that was that had a huge issue with it, it was gonna be a million dollars to fix. The deal is a small relatively smaller deal, maybe ten to fifteen million. So uh we tried to either get it fixed or get a credit. The seller didn't want to, buy it, so we had a walk. But other than that, um we you know we we've, we've closed all the other deals we've gone into.
0: So you started out, you were you were doing it all. You were finding the deal, buying the deal, helping rehab the deal, manage the deal, and um your your company's grown you're now across the country i have to imagine your job has changed quite a bit what do you what does your job entail today
1: yeah my role totally changed i mean yeah damien and i used to do everything we sort of you know I, i i sort of he he focused on the rehabs and dealing with the contractors i focused on the new acquisitions and raising the money And and we sort of shared the asset management part of the job. And then we hired uh, another younger gentleman who helped us for – we couldn't afford to pay anything, so we gave him, you know, like, I don't even know, $500 a month, but made him a third partner at the time. And then we just – every – we always found – we always sort of added people as we needed, and we're up to, like, 25 people. And we have the different departments. We have asset management. That's one department. So we have a head of asset management with asset management, asset managers under them. We have – acquisitions department with a head of acquisitions with acquisitions you know people under them we have a COO we have an accounting department um, with five people in it Um, we have our in-house legal probably forgetting some we got our own construction management uh, individual Uh, we have uh, people that oversee our two people that oversee our ground-up development another gentleman that oversees the manufactured housing communities Um, we didn't really talk about it but we have one gentleman that oversees the venture fund venture fund, the the early stage tech startups we invest in. So I'm a big big believer in uh, bringing people in. I I always, every day I have people that want to work for us and just reach out to me, which is an amazing position to be in. I think it's because they just, word of mouth, people tell people how how we're doing very well and doing well for the investors. And it's a great culture and great organization. And I, I get to cherry pick who I want working for me. So we've hired a lot of people over the years that didn't really fit in a particular box. They just exhibited, you know, criteria that that I thought would be a good cultural fit, and we sort of made a position for them. If they started in one position and it wasn't working that well, we, we, we veered them into a different direction um, where they'd be a better fit and just really play played people's strength, essentially. So um, we've had very little turnover in terms of staffing. Everyone that's left has been sort of left. They, I mean, like, wasn't we, we wasn't a great fit to begin with, so... All the core team members are still here, and we, we incentivize everyone in the office to, you know, stay and build for the long term. Um, we've historically started pay a little bit on the lesser side on the salary, but over time really grown it a lot quicker in any or- – where you would make in any or- other organization and also given um, pieces of all the um, cash cash flow and the, the back end to promote to, to uh, you know, all the staff members and really trying to align ourselves with them and have them – you know be happy in, in this work environment and stay long term. And I think they like being here, you know it's part of our DNA to be entrepreneurial, and every day is something different. And you know definitely nowadays I'm just marketing investor relations, like ra- raising money, um, more big vision, where are we going with this company, new hires. And be honest, and I tell people, I, I haven't gone to a lot of our recent acquisitions because I trust my teams that much on the acquisition front. They've gone to hundreds and hundreds of buildings. they know what we want to buy. You know they know they, they know how to analyze a deal better than I can nowadays. So I tell people, which is true, I don't even know how to use Microsoft Excel. I don't I don't know how to use uh, you know. <laughs> so like I literally you know am am really focused on those things that those activities: marketing, raising money, um, direction of company, strategic you know strategy, and making sure everyone works well together. Um, we've had we just started doing some like business coaching for the executives here, and you know that's been great. So it's really scaling this business, and um, growing the team has been integral over the
0: last few years. That's fascinating. I literally, and I'm not kidding you, I told, I was with our analysts yesterday and a few other folks, and I said, guess who is the worst person on Excel in this entire company? Me. <laughs> I am, yeah. my, my original Excel model was a little one pager, and um, I know how to read yeah. them, I know what they mean, but I cannot build them. I am awful on Excel.
1: Yeah, I mean, I literally could just put numbers and fields. I don't know anything else. But <laughs> even from the begin, even for the beginning, I didn't joke. About- I mean, I could have learned it myself and and done it, which some people do. But the the that actual third person we brought in was our analyst, and you know, from-, from we 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 sort of hired to where our weaknesses were, and and really focused on what we were good at. And I think that's important for any you know people in their in their careers.
0: Where uh, and this is a a question I get asked a lot, and I'm sure you do as well. And I never have a a great answer because. It, to me, it just feels like it will never end. There's always something else. But where is your company going to be in 10 years? Or what, what's the end point? Or does it survive you? Or, you know, what, what does the end look like?
1: Yeah, so so the end is my life is over. And my, hopefully, God willing, one of my one of my kids will be in the business. Um, if not, one of my kids will have good leadership in place that, that takes it to, to, to the next level. So, you know, I think um, it's not, you know, I'm never going to liquidate these buildings. Um, you know, occasionally we'll sell a building here and there to create some liquidity and, you know, put some money into our, our pocket and our investors' pockets. But yeah, I'd say, you know, we're, we're, we currently own around uh, 5,000 apartment units. And I'd say I'd love to own, you know, a nice round number of 10,000. But in all reality, there's the sky's the limit as long as we're doing a good job. And, you know, I think, um, you know, the, the sky's the limit. But definitely, it's just a nice round number. And then eventually, you know, breaking into the top 50, you know, owners of, in the U.S., you got to have it around 20,000 units. But there's, not, there's only maybe one or two other syndication companies that are on that list. They're, they're, they're mainly, uh, like, publicly traded kind of companies or font, large funds um, that deal with institutional kind of investors. And I'd say just staying with our DNA and how we're building this business and um, I'd say, you know, trying to own – we always try to invest as much money as we can in, in our own deals. And I'd like to just becoming a bigger and bigger portion of the capital raises over time as uh, we we grow this thing. Um, the investors always always that's the first question: how much money are you putting into the deals? And you know the truth is I, I put as much as I can into the deals. But um, and, and which is scaled. You know I started very small and now <clears throat> it's getting bigger and bigger. But um, I'd say
0: real estate's expensive. Yeah,
1: real estate's expensive. It, it, it you know costs a lot to run 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 the business here. But the beauty is I'm not under the gun to buy buildings, whereas our people that raise the fund they have a finite time frame where they have to deploy the capital so they'll start overpaying for things and you know it's, it's um it's it's very important to be patient i think especially as the prices have gone up over the last you know just call it seven eight years we've been more picky and more patient and one of my mentors always taught us it's better to re- better to regret not buying a property than to regret buying a property and having issues down the road so um definitely you know try, try to he- heed that that warning
0: do you think growth will come through a property by property acquisition, or do you think you'll eventually start buying out maybe companies or entire portfolios growing that way?
1: Yeah, portfolios. We we've bought a bunch of two property portfolios. Yeah, I, I guess once we're large enough, and as long as you know some, some some points of the cycle, like right now, I think people are paying up for portfolios. A lot of these large companies need to deploy capital, so they're the larger the portfolio, they'll, they'll pay a premium. Whereas sometimes in the market, if someone needs to dispose of a lot of assets and it's a just depressed situation, you could buy it and, at a discount, you know, to then buying them one by one. So, um, you know, we're, we're sort of constrained. We can only maybe raise up to, I don't know, call it $35 million on any one particular deal. You know, we, we only try to do one deal at a time. So eventually it would be great to just be able to do larger portfolio buys or multiple deals at the same time. But it, it's literally... Very hard to find deals now, anyway. So it's it's not like if we if we uh, found more deals, I think the money still would come. It's just very hard to find good opportunities right now at this point of the cycle. But we, we, they are they are out there still.
0: Yep. Now that it is it has gotten a lot tougher. I got a couple more questions for you. This has been fascinating. First is what does Gelt stand for? G E L T Inc. is Keith's company, and what does that stand for?
1: Yeah. So literally the word Gelt. Means money in Yiddish, and you know, I, I grew up. My grandparents are Holocaust survivors, and I wanted a, a a cool, short Yiddish word that was part of our DNA, and you know, not just money, but it means like during Hanukkah time we give these chocolate candies, you know, Hanukkah gelt, and it's um, I don't know, it's a it's a cute kind of thing, and, and I, it it involves like giving back, and you know, we're very charitable, and all the different. Um, you know communities we invest in, but not just that. We we literally just started our our a 501c3 called Resident Relief Foundation. It's a public nonprofit that we're covering 100% of the overhead for. So all the monies that come in go out to to renters that are at um, in need of of funds because of a financial crisis. So some of the people have had job losses this is the most common. Other people you know had medical bills, car accidents, different things that. They, they would have been on the street or evicted. And we have literally had a lot of industry support and have helped uh, 50 individuals and families last year, hopefully double that to 100 this year. So really give back to the apartment community because without renters, we wouldn't have a business. So, you know, rent, apartment owners are starting to be seen as sort of greedy, money-hungry kind of, you know, companies and stuff. And, you know, with, with we had Prop 10 that almost passed here, um, you know, that uh, was, was going to do more. And some states, they have blanketed rent controls now, like, you know, so I, I say there's a lot of pushback and we want to try to show that, have a good PR campaign for our industry, but also to really help, you know, people that need the help. Uh, responsible renters that have never, not never, but I think we have a criteria, nine months of paying rent on time, not no late fees and stuff. And, you know, we, we, we help. It's a win, win, win. The apartment owner gets to keep a good tenant in there. They don't have to have any eviction costs, down, downtime costs, rehab costs for the, for the unit. And it's a win for society because that person. A lot of these people would have maybe been on the street. We have a lot of veterans we've helped. Um, people that's that, incredible. Yeah, and, and we actually, we, our first few people we helped were in uh, your state of Texas when you had your Hurricane Harvey go through. A few residents um, contacted us via their management companies. We always give the money to the management company, so the resident can't right. use, can't use it to buy you know big screen TV or whatever. So it has to be used for the payment of rent. And a few. Uh, single fathers that work, worked multiple jobs they had their places of employment you know were, were damaged and were closed for a few, you know a few months but the, their their home they saw them pay their rent for their farming community right so they didn't even understand about eviction and what happens to your record and how hard it is to find another home once you have that on, on your record so we literally helped um, keep those those individuals and, and they had kids in, in their homes and um, the our average grants only been one point six months worth I think of rent um originally I thought we were gonna have to give up to six months of rent for people but people are pretty resilient they just need that that hand up instead of a handout you know just to you know give them a little breathing room uh, we were talking offline a little bit about a company we, we support called Lambda School which uh yesterday they just announced that they are going to be paying a living stipend of two thousand dollars per student uh for their nine month program it's a computer science program for uh programming and iOS development and coding and stuff beyond my pay grade I couldn't I don't think I could do but they literally um they have over a thousand concurrent students right now they just started a year and a half ago they're they're paying the students to go right now and they make money on an income share agreement once you have a job that pays over fifty thousand dollars a year they they split in, in in the in the in the income for like up to two years and it caps out at a certain dollar amount and literally they are now paying you know the students so it's leveling the playing field you have you know, you're gonna have students from all walks of life. Uh, most of their students are not, you know, college age. They're actually people that are changing careers. They're stuck in dead end jobs. They're tired of working for minimum wage, and you know, they they do this program. They're they're smart enough to learn how to code and whatnot, and, and change careers, and they they start earning. The average salary is close to six figures. It's pretty crazy. I mean, they, the, they're taking people from you know $15 an hour to $75 to $150,000 annual pay, and it's 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 unbelievable. And um, You know, that's a company that we invested in early on in uh, the education space, and it's just, um, I don't know, I just love the company. It's doing well financially, but also helping tons of people, and it's just going to continue to grow, uh, you know, globally,
0: I think. I've been fascinated by it, and so, and to confirm, if you are uh, looking for a job and computer science is in need of many new people, you can go to Lambda School for free and they will pay you a stipend and then once you have graduated and you get a job then you pay them back so the traditional university where a lot of students are going into a lot of debt with no guarantee of a job or a future that could even pay off that student debt it's the flip with lambda They're on. they're they're holding themselves accountable saying if we can't make you successful you don't pay us and by the way we'll even pay you to come to our school that is that is Not only going to be a fascinating thing for consumers, any university that's not keeping an eye on this model better start looking quick because I have a feeling it's about to flip uh, how we've thought about going to school forever.
1: Exactly. I mean, look, I I think a four-year degree, you know, it's going to have its place still, but I don't think it's a fit all. I don't think every single person needs to go to college and like, you know, a lot lot of people, they're better off going to a trade school. Essentially, Lambda is like a modern day trade school that's training for new age jobs and I think, like, I, I had the luxury. My parents paid for the school. I got some scholarships. So I, I graduated without the debt. But if if I was to, you know, go to USC again and have to pay out of pocket or get student loans, it would have costed $200,000. And, you know, it, it was a great experience for me, I'd say, because I met a lot of friends and connections, went, you know, supported the football team, whatever. But, like, you know, I think, I think it's not for everyone. I, I think, um, you know, a lot of people, they're better off going the route of, you know, Doing some kind of trade school, learning a trade, you know, getting an internship, starting to work a little earlier. I, I was working all through college. I, I was telling you offline we uh, I started uh, Keith's Bargain Center. We sold around two hundred thousand items on eBay during my years of college. So I, I was I was always working at the same time as college. But four year college is not not for it's not a fit all for everyone for sure.
0: No, and it's it's I think people would be surprised to hear this when I look at resumes. I very very rarely ever even look. Not only where they went to school, if they went to school, it, it just in today's world you can learn online so much, you can read so much, and be even more educated than people went to school. And so it's not a criteria for uh, working at Fort Capital, and I imagine you share a similar philosophy.
1: I'm 100 the same way. I, I could care less where they could go to school. I, I'm I'm more I would be more you know excited if they didn't go to school, but they learned on their own and took the initiative and You know, excelled through you know, like like Austin for example at Lambda School, he he dropped out of school. He lived in his car for four months. He's very resourceful guy. You know, was was homeless for a period of time. You know, we're looking at another company, same kind of founder, hungry, where they weren't just given everything. And I think, um, look, if if you have the opportunity to attend some of these elite universities, I think the social capital is the best thing. And 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 signaling, like you said, from some employers, but for like guys like you and me that are more entrepreneurial and we understand. You know, ha- having a you know a, a, an Ivy League on the on the thing, it's, it's it's just it just means a they it could be a they could have been a great student or B with with this whole bribing scandal thing that just happened. You could see maybe maybe uh, yeah. you know pop had dough and and blocked their way into the college. For... <laughs> so it's it, it, it's pretty crazy. Um, you know the world we are, yep. in. but definitely I, I share the same view as you.
0: It's changing quickly. Well. I'll wrap up with one more question, and I think you've answered it in different ways throughout this this great conversation. But for anybody listening that's on the on the fence about starting a company or wanting to move up in the company that they're at, or anything that um, you know they're taking some risk, what what would you tell them? Uh, have been some of the critical keys to your success, and things that anybody could do that don't need money to do them. Yeah.
1: you start small your mistakes will be small right so the first building we bought literally didn't have any money didn't want to go to my dad for money so we got an fha loan you know only two or two and a half percent down we borrowed that money so we borrowed five thousand dollars from a friend we got a cash advance of ten thousand dollars on a credit card to do the rehab and that's how we bought the little first fourplex and i think as an entrepreneur you got to figure out how to be resourceful uh every business you know that starts pretty much starts small and you learn from your mistakes. My path happened to be I've never worked for anyone. I started my own company. A lot of people's paths they they start you know at smaller or bigger companies. Learn as much as they can. You know that's that's the best education. You know instead of going to college and paying, you could get paid and, and work for someone else and learn what to do and what not to do. And um, I'd say align yourself with good mentors early on. There's there's a ton of people that want to give back if they see someone that's young and hungry and that wants to put in the work. So I'd say have good mentors. Uh, Be resourceful, you know, find something that you love and you're passionate about is also great. I I fell into real estate. I'm lucky. If I wasn't doing real estate, I'd probably be doing some other kind of business where, you know, I I really love doing it. I I wasn't, like, in love with, you know, buying and selling general merchandise, and, you know, I just sort of fizzled out of that thing. I sold all my my, my remaining items, and I uh, looked for a new career path. So find something you're passionate about, and internships are a great way to do that. You know, when you're younger, it's up uh, for, you know, just um, yeah, that's
0: sort of my advice. Yeah. When you're young, take risk. You don't uh, you don't have family and overhead and and yeah. and much more risk of downside. When you're young, it's all upside.
1: Yep, hundred percent.
0: All right, Keith, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, I really look forward to getting to know you better in the years to come, and especially out in L.A. Uh, in a few months at the YPO um, Global Conference.
1: Yeah, looking forward to meeting you in person, and um, definitely uh, thanks for having me on the show. If any of the listeners want to connect with me, you just email me, keith at geltinc.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. at Keith underscore Wasserman. I'm big on social media, so uh, even Facebook or Instagram, you can find me as well. Instagram Instagram's, uh KF Wasserman, I believe. But um, definitely uh, reach out if, if you guys have any questions. And uh, thanks for having me on, on the show, Chris.
0: Thanks, Keith. I'll be in touch. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.